the pandemic of persecution, part two. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you once again for bringing us into this place. We thank you, Father, for allowing us uh, this opportunity to study your word and history and prophecy. I ask, Father God, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. And upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Lord, let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father God, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Revelation chapter 6 is where we'll jump back to. We'll build a little bit back up from where we left off last time. There's so much I wish I could go into, but in a two-part piece, uh, there's a lot that I can't. And there are some deeper spiritual uh, messaging that I find in these verses that I want to share. And so I'm not going to get into this as if it was a Revelation seminar, but really more um, kind of as what I call a seminar, uh, where we kind of blend a sermon in with a seminar. So Revelation 6 and verse 7 says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the, of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed him with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Uh, this is, we, we talked about this being the church during the dark ages and the persecution of the faithful during this time through programs like uh, the Spanish Inquisition um, and the desire to destroy the heretics, the quote unquote heretics in Europe, and eventually even around the world. One of the things that we highlighted last time is that here where it says in verse 8 of Revelation 6, it says that they to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death. And the word for death there is thanatos. Uh, the word that I mentioned last time is um, also the word that Marvel Comics used to create the villain Thanos. He's the god, Greek god of death. And so here it says that you are to kill with death. A lot of times that's, that's translated pestilence. And since we're in the middle of a pandemic, a pestilence, it is interesting that, that this is embedded in this church, which would have been the church that would have existed around the, the churches of Revelation chapter 3 of Thyatira and Sardis, which we'll come back to later on. So this is where we are in the story, where the people of God are being persecuted. It is a terrible time. Um, and the world went so far backwards that we still to this day call the time uh, when the papacy ruled the world with almost um, complete uh, uh, omnipotence around the world, complete power. We still call that the Dark Ages. We talked last time about how Galileo, the great astronomer, was actually um, uh, taken in front of one of these tribunals and uh, put under house arrest and died. It was a time where science and information and progress were completely stifled. But it was predicted in the scripture, Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, 4, and 7, speaking of what we described last time as this little horn power. It said, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Paul says, listen, even right now, there is working underfoot. And what was, was Paul really referring to? The idea that as we studied through the four horses of Revelation, that, that after the white horse, the first horse, which only lasted until about 100 AD, that afterwards, quickly and swiftly, uh, paganism would slip into the church and begin to take hold of the church. And eventually the church would go from a white horse to a black horse after the red horse of the influence of paganism. And under the black horse, the, the church gained, uh, the, the papacy gained complete control. And then under the pale horse where we land today, the church now has political and religious power. That's what Paul was warning them of way back when he wrote to the Thessalonians. Revelation 6, 9 and 10 says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And we talked last time about how uh, the blood of Cain called out, of uh, the blood of Abel, sorry, called out to God when he uh, the blood of Abel called out to God after his brother Cain had killed him. That this is symbolic imagery stating that when the, when, the, when, the, when the righteous are slaughtered, that God hears and sees it all. So what happened? As this time period moves forward, there are certain things that begin to happen. One of them is the Protestant Reformation. As Martin Luther, on October 31st, uh, interesting that that that, um, that 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 date now holds other meaning. But as he stood there over 500 years ago, um, and he uh, uh, hammered his 95 thesis into the wall of that church, he began what to, he actually continued what was a great reform movement against many of the false teachings and doctrines of the church at the time. And this, to me, and as you study this thing, is the time when this blood begins to cry out, when those who had been put in, under false trials and tortured, persecuted, and slain, now hundreds of thousands of them at least, and that's a conservative estimate, um, now as the, as, the, as the Protestant Reformation comes forward, uh, what they died for was justified. People like the Walden Seas. And others who suffered at the hands of the Vatican and the papacy under the times of the Dark Ages. And ultimately what happens to end this time at around the time when, um, uh, of the, when this, as, the, as the seven seals move through um, and you get to the sixth seal. Uh, one of the things that happens in 1798 is Berthier arrests Pope Pius VI. And as you can see here in this picture, and this was the took away the temporal power from the Vatican. I want you to understand before this, they had political and religious power, but the French, after the French Huguenots had suffered, and we'll talk more about them in a, in a second, under the, the, the rule of, of, of the Vatican, it's as if Napoleon, a couple hundred years later, looking back, uh, see, realizes that this type of, of rule is not good, and he, and he uh, uh, turns Italy into a republic and and wants Europe to be led a different way. There's a lot more that you can unpack from that. But what ends up happening, however, is that that is a wound, a deadly wound, as we'll see it's called later on, that uh, is received by the papacy. And this deadly wound changes everything because it is the beginning of the end of the persecution of the Dark Ages. 
And so some say, well, those dark ages, the, the, it didn't really happen, or they, they argue it. But here, the Pope apologizes for killing Protestants after 500 years. And this is from the Trumpet um, Journal. The Pope uh, aims to end the biggest split in Christendom, a development that would radically expand the prestige and reach of the Catholic Church. So the Pope says, listen, we're sorry we killed Protestants um, all those years ago. And the Pope comes forward because the Pope, as we're going to see, is trying to bring the world back together under Catholicism. But the article goes on and says some other things. It says, um, the trumpet has long said that the Catholic Church would play a major role in unifying Europe. Once again, the only unifying authority which the coming 10 nations of Roman Catholic Europe can accept is the Pope of Rome. That was from Herbert Armstrong. He wrote that back in 1961 in Plain Truth magazine. But they say now, even back then, Mr. Armstrong saw the potential religious unity and political unity to be linked. This was even before the Vatican II Council, the famous Catholic meeting that revolutionized the church's approach to outside groups and began laying the groundwork for the type of unity the church is seeking now. They quote here and they say, the nations of Europe want to go together, yet they are competitive against each other. They distrust each other. This is before the European Union was formed. The common market is knocking down the chief competitive barrier, trade. That's what the European Union's common market does, he wrote in that same article. Another serious barrier has been religion. Protestants have been unwilling to submit to the, to the authority of the Pope. But that barrier, too, is fast crumbling. Did you see what he said there? He said this back in, this is, I believe they're quoting back to 1961. Everywhere there is a relaxing of Protestant opposition against the Roman Catholic Church. There was a deadly wound we talked about in 1798 that is being healed. And this is uh, being spoken of uh, by, from the Trumpet magazine. Today, both economic and religious barriers to a united Europe are greatly weakened, he wrote. The Pope is the one political leader who can demolish the political barrier. And then he says, the stage is set. The stage is set. All that is needed is a new fear for their common safety from Russia. Now, this was written during the time of the Cold War, but I want you to notice that he says that the Pope is the one political leader, even though the Pope is supposed to be a religious leader. The quest to heal the wound is a quest to bring the political power back to the Vatican. So he goes on, the article goes on and says, the superstate that the European Union elites want to create is not possible without some kind of common heritage, which is why we set, see it on the brink of collapse today. Only the Catholic Church can provide that heritage. Having close relations with Europe's major churches is a necessary precondition. As Mr. Armstrong pointed out, that is already in place. So the, the writer from the recent article say, is saying all of this. No major religious group in Europe opposes the Catholic Church. I want you to hear this, church. No major religious group in Europe opposes the Catholic Church or the Pope in principle. There are, there are merely a narrowing number of doctrinal disagreements. Now they're saying not only is the Pope going to bring the political side of this all together, and I should have put up some pic pictures from the Capitol, I've been to the, to the headquarters of the European Union and how, how uh, the, the, all of the Catholic imagery as if the Catholic Church is the official church of the European Union. But now they're saying, if that's the political side, they're also saying from a, from a doctrinal side that there are merely a narrowing number of doctrinal disagreements. In other words, from a, from a, from a theological standpoint, the differences are going to fall away. 
The question is, if the theological differences fall away, whose theology will you be left with? 1963, in the midst of the Vatican II Council, the plain truth reported, today the time is ripe. This is all the way back in 1963. Today the time is ripe, according to the official Catholic views, for making the final effort to unite the church bodies of the Christian world. The mighty problem of achieving unity is twofold. First, it involves reconciliation of the orthodox schism that officially commenced in 1054 and divided the churches in the East, Greece, Russia, and Balkans, and the Near East near, from Rome. Second, it involves restoration to the Roman communion, all Protestantism, all of Protestantism, which developed from 1517 onwards. They said, listen, we've got to get the Orthodox churches back, and we've got to get Protestant churches back. What's interesting is that there's one Orthodox church they don't mention, or a couple. One of them is Egypt and the Coptic church, and also the Ethiopian Orthodox church, which when you read the great controversy, it speaks to Central Africa and the fact that deep down in, in Central Africa, Sister White tells us that they, were, they continued to keep the Sabbath. So there, were, there, there was a de desire to pull this all back. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not a coincidence that it was Italy who invaded Ethiopia and tried to colonize it. Because Ethiopia had held on to much of the Bible truths. It had been, it had been uh, um, um, splintered a bit. But, but the Sabbath truth remained there. And a, and a reverence for scripture remained there that uh, the Vatican did not like. And so Mussolini tried to take Ethiopia. But otherwise than that, they said they have to get all of these Orthodox churches. And isn't it interesting? Many of the Orthodox churches fell to communism, including ultimately even Ethiopia fell to communism uh, after Haley Selassie's um, departure. So com communism seems to have swept in, and there's those who believe that communism is allowed to go in to certain places in order to remove Orthodox religion so that the Catholic Church can have a place inside of those uh, nations. And you can do more study on that, but if you look at the, the Orthodox churches, those are the countries that were much more likely to become communist under the Soviet power. The first problem, the reconciliation of the Orthodox schism, is nearly resolved. The only real exception here is the Russian Orthodox Church, which is a tool of the Russian government and therefore less keen on submitting to Rome. The second divide is almost resolved as well. Look at this. Of course, there will be holdouts who will not return to Rome voluntarily. Listen to this last sentence. This article says, these would have to be dealt with after a strong political union is in place. This magazine says that, in fact, those who will not fold under Rome, once there is political uh, unity again and the, and the deadly wound has been uh, restored and the temporal powers of the Vatican have been put back into place, when that happens, then those who disagree, according to the words of this author, they will be dealt with. The pandemic of persecution will come back. We will once again see what happened during the Dark Ages happening again now. The author says today we see an economic crisis, fear of terrorism, and fear of Russia all pushing Europe together. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church has already made great headway toward unity with Lutherans. Full unity would not just be of interest to religious people. It would have real-world geopolitical implication. As Mr. Armstrong wrote, the stage is set. 
I want us to understand that although I know some don't, don't understand this kind of preaching or don't want this kind of preaching, the reality is that what has been prophesied is coming to pass. And we'll get more into that now because not only is a time of persecution coming, but there is a decided effort to erase the persecutions of the past. And I can't read all of this, but from the journal, the article, uh, the Guardian, sorry, um, historians say Inquisition wasn't that bad. For centuries, people were burned at the stake, stretched to death or otherwise tortured for failing to become Roman Catholic. But if research released by the Vatican is right, the Inquisition was not as bad as one might think. I would love for you to read that entire article as they make the case that, in fact, really, it was only a, you know, only a, a few hundred thousand people that actually died, not millions. I don't care if it was 10 people, 10,000 or 100,000. It speaks to the nature of this beast, this nature of this beast that will one day again speak like a dragon once the wound is healed. So this idea now they're going to do and go back and pretty up the history and say, eh, really the Spanish Inquisition wasn't that bad is a shocking thing. One of the examples of this is the, um, the French Huguenots um, who left um, from France and fled to the North America and South Africa. I've been to um, in South Africa to the museum and a and monument to where, where they landed. Um, and of course, we have them. We have um, Huguenot societies in South Carolina and on other parts of the eastern seaboard. But a large number of French refugees began to arrive in the Cape after that's the Cape of South Africa after leaving their, their country as a result of the Edict of Fontainebleau, um, 1685, which revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1598. That had gained, that had granted religious toleration to Protestants. And so it was Louis the 13th and then Louis the 14th, which brought great persecution to the Huguenots. All of a sudden there was a push, and this is what happened. And if you read the story of the Huguenots, it was a horrible uh, persecution. And yet now they would say, listen, what happened back then wasn't so bad. Revelation 13 says it like this. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And again, this is the little horn power. Uh, this is the pale horse power. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet was as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The, the, here, the, the beasts of Daniel 7 are, are, are piled together to, to create a conglomerate, which speaks to the pagan a background from Babylon, Greece, and pagan Rome um, that, that ties into this new beast. But it says in verse 3 of Revelation 13, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And then it says, and all the world wondered after the beast. And all the world wondered after the beast, after his wound was healed. The question we've got to answer before we get to some of the lessons from all of this is, has this wound been healed? Well, we know in 1929, Mussolini restored temporal power uh, to the Vatican City and the Pope became a political entity and a religious entity, um, at which time he could receive um, 
diplomats. The United States banned that. There was a law in America against sending diplomats in order to respect the First Amendment of the Constitution for a separation of church and state. How do you send a diplomat to a religious political power when we don't mix those two things together? But I want to submit to you that things change pretty quickly. Here's a picture of the Pope and President Barack Obama laughing. Um, and it says at the top, take what you need and leave the rest. Why atheists love Pope Francis. The Pope ignites unprecedented secular excitement. And this week, U.S. crowds coming to see him. This is when he visited Philadelphia. And this week, U.S. crowds coming to see him will likely be infiltrated by many non-religious admirers. The Bible says that all the world wondered after the beast. Even the atheists would come, uh, will, will come and, and respect him. Uh, one of the one of the one of the brightest minds of much, although I disagree with him heavily on many things is um, uh, HBO's Bill Maher, who who has his own TV show. I don't I don't watch HBO, but um, I've seen his show many times, and he is a diehard anti-religion guy. He made a documentary called Religious. In other words, that if you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, it's ridiculous. It's religious. Um, yet he sings the Pope's praises. I've heard him sing the Pope's praises. He's a former Catholic. I think his parent, one of his parents was a Catholic and he was raised partly in Catholic schools. And yet he who hates religion and God speaks well of the Pope. All the world wondered after the beast. And of course, John Paul II is seen here with um, Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan and a formal visit. And all of a sudden, Protestant America that would once not send a diplomat, now the presidents of this great nation, even Bernie Sanders and others, they, they want to go and sit at the feet of the Pope. They want, they want the, the blessing of the Pope on their political, um, on their political moves. And so this, the, the wound that existed when finally America uh, reversed this, um, the, 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 the um, ban on sending um, uh, diplomats to the Vatican it's almost as if that was the final piece of the wound healing. Now the world sees everything differently. In fact, in this pandemic, you can see from this article here, my father, Joseph D. Wallace, written April 9th, just a few weeks ago of 2020. Um, it says, Pandemics, the pandemic unites Christians in prayer. Pope Francis leads a global recitation of the Lord's Prayer from the Library of the Apostolic Palace at the Vatican, March 25th, 2020. The Pope and the Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant leaders who joined him for the prayer implored God's mercy on humanity amid the coronavirus pandemic. I want you to understand that as this pandemic rolls on and the world's fear rolls on, they will use this as an opportunity to try and be even more ecumenical and bring the world to religions together. It is happening as it was predicted. The wound has been healed. And here's the truth. If the wound is healed, will the beast begin to act as she used to? Well, this is a quote from the book, The Keys of This Blood by Malachi Martin. Adventists used to quote this book a lot. This is one of the people who he, he helped um, translate the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's a strong uh, Catholic um, author of the of the Jesuits and the Final Conclave. Um, the name of the book is The Keys of This Blood, The Struggle for World Dominion Between Pope John Paul II, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the Capitalist West. He says in that book, and I'll quote it with um, some... Uh, um, uh, in the eyes of, bracketed here, of groups like Adventist, Baptist, and Evangelical sects, unbracketed, 
their regard and respect for democratic principles impose upon them the obligation, the religious as well as the civil and political obligation to defend every person's right to be wrong. Every person must have the right not only to believe in hell of the damned and heaven of the saved. Uh, every person must have the right not only to believe in the hell of the damned and heaven to be saved. Every person must literally be assured the right to choose hell or, over heaven. That obligation carried to the extreme not only sets the minimalists apart from John Paul, it sets them against him as well. Did you hear that? The fact that we believe in America, based on the First Amendment of the Constitution, that you should have a right to choose how you worship or where you spend eternity, according to Malachi Martin, that sets any of us who believe that against the Pope. Second paragraph says, it sets, it says, it sets them apart from the Holy Father because democratic principles can never take precedence over divine revelation. Whose divine revelation? The Pope's. No one can be forced to believe in heaven or hell or to choose the one over the other. Nevertheless, it is axiomatic for John Paul that no one has the right, democratic or otherwise, to a moral wrong. And that's page 287 of that book. No one has a right to choose the moral wrong. Here's the thing, church. If the moral wrong one day is that you don't keep Sunday holy, according to what is written here, you don't have the right if you don't have the right, how did they deal with those in the past, during the Dark Ages, during the Inquisition, during the, 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 the banishing of the Huguenots? How were those who were on the wrong side of Catholic morals, how were they treated? Ultimately, they were persecuted, tortured, and put to death. The question during this pandemic now is, will this happen again? In the book, The Great Controversy, page 565, Ellen White says it like this. She says, the Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. This is said long before the Second Vatican Council of, 1860, of 1963. Ellen White says, uh, she, the Roman Catholic church, she is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control over of the world. Did you hear that? to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground upon every side. See the increasing number of her churches and chapels in Protestant countries. Look at the popularity of her colleges and seminaries in America, so widely patronized by Protestants. Look at the growth of ritualism in England and the frequent de defections to the ranks of the Catholics. These things should awaken the anxiety. They should awaken the anxiety of all who prize the pure principles of the gospel. She goes on in the Great Controversy, page 571. Ellen White says, the Roman church now presents a fair front to the world. Covering with apologies, just as we just read one, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she is unchained, unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. The doctrines devised in the darkest ages are still held. Let none deceive themselves. The papacy 
that Protestants are now so ready to honor is the same that ruled the world in the days of the Reformation, when, when men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to expose her iniquity. She possesses the same pride and arrogant assumption that lorded it over kings and princes and claimed the prerogatives of God. Her spirit is no less cruel and despotic now than when she crushed out human liberty and slew the saints of the Most High. So we go back to Revelation chapter 6, and I want to show you where we are now. Revelation 6.12 says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs, when she, has, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Verse 14 says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Here's what I want you to get, church. We are between Revelation 6.13 and Revelation 6.14. That's where we are right now. The, 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 all of those signs, and I was going to go through them tonight, starting at the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 and ending with the stars falling in 1833, and there was even another time in 1866. All of these signs showed that, in fact, uh, the, the wound would be delivered and the time of the end would start. And we are living in that space. And we're going to fill in the space between 13 and 14 in terms of what we need to do tonight. But don't just look to Revelation 6. Look at Matthew 24, verse 29 and 30. It says, and immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. All of that is going to happen. And then what happens? Verse 30 speaks to what's about to happen next, church. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Church, the next thing, if you look at Revelation 6, um, uh, uh, 13 and 14, or Matthew 24, 29 and 30, the next thing to happen is the second coming of Christ. That's where we are. But as we go through the seven seals, something happens. And this is where I want to focus on tonight. Something happens as you're going through the seven seals. When you get to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Before the time comes when, when the wicked run to the rocks, as we talked about last week, and say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that cometh, who shall be able to stand uh, and ask the question because of the, of the wrath of the Lamb? God, something happens. The spirit of prophecy tells us uh, more on this. We'll get to that in a second. But these four angels holding back the four winds of strife is, is stuck in the middle here of the seven seals. Why? To tell you what has to happen. These four angels are ready to let the winds of strife blow. Revelation 7, 2 says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Don't miss this. In between the verses that we just talked about, in Revelation 6, 13 and 14, in Matthew 24, 29 and 30, in between those verses, 
before the second coming happens, there's a sealing that must take place. In fact, a fifth angel is sent to stop the four angels from letting go. The world has become so wicked that it's time for wrath to come. Jesus sees this and, and another angel comes in mercy. Because God's remnant must be sealed. How does that happen? Well, it happens, it says they must be sealed in their foreheads. Remember that the mark of the beast, we won't get into that tonight, but it happens in the forehead and in the right hand. But the seal of God only happens in the forehead. Why is that relevant? Because all who will be sealed or saved in the last days are going to have to make a choice. If you, if you get a mark in your hand, it means you're a follower. That's what that means in the mark of the beast. But when you, when you make the decision to follow God, there is no uh, de facto way to do it. You must choose him. And this is what the frontal lobe is for. It sits right behind the forehead bone. It is um, often called the prefrontal cortex of the brain. It is the part of the brain where reasoning happens, decisions are made, where we think. In fact, this is where our personality and our character sits. This is what the devil wants to destroy. The great controversy really boils down to the battle for the frontal lobe of the minds of the world. Who will reign supreme in the minds of the people? Uh, this is why the Bible says that we are to have the, this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. It is the frontal lobe, this part of the brain. That's why uh, there's so much push, and we'll talk about this more next week, so much of a push on for drugs and alcohol um, and other addictive substances that take you out of your right mind. This is why the Bible says that the drunk will not inherit the kingdom of God because you must be able to choose. Fact is so relevant that in Isaiah 1 and verse 18 it says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sin be, sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How does that happen? You've got to be able to reason. That's why the devil wants you intoxicated. He wants you dumb in the mind. He wants you thinking about what's on TikTok and what's on what's on Facebook and what's on. Instagram, he wants you distracted with Netflix and, and the secular music of the day. He wants your mind absorbed in the petty, shallow, foolish things of this time. Why? Because you're between the verses. Jesus is about to return and you've got to be sealed in your mind. But if your mind is occupied with foolishness, you won't receive the seal. In fact, when Paul speaks about this, he says it like this. Ephesians 6, 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Did you get that? When Paul speaks about the putting on the whole armor of God, salvation is a helmet. Why? Because helmets protect your frontal lobe. It is that part of your brain where you are saved, whether you either choose God, where you believe God. This is where faith is nurtured and righteousness is by faith. If you can remove or, or, or disattach uh, in terms of, of moral connectivity, the frontal lobe from the spirit of God, you will be lost. So you need the helmet of salvation. Look what the Bible says, Ephesians 1.13, in whom he also trusted after that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. What sealed you? The Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit sealed you? Because it is the Holy Spirit that leads you into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms the character. We ought to pray not just to the Holy Spirit, but for the Holy Spirit. 
Because it is the Holy Spirit. That's why so many come with these false doctrines now of uh, anti-Trinitarian doctrines to de destroy these things. Because if you can destroy the understanding of the Holy Spirit, you won't have, you won't be able to be sealed without the Holy Spirit. In fact, Ephesians 4, speaking to those very people who speak against the Holy Spirit, verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That means we are redeemed. So it's not just, um, it's not just uh, uh, that we, we make a choice. We are redeemed. How are we redeemed? And I, don't, I wish I had more time to get into this tonight. But I want you to understand that the people of God uh, are redeemed because we have a belief. We have a faith from our frontal lobe, a belief in not just the righteousness of Christ, but in the power of his blood to wash away our sins. There are many in the last days who are going to be lost because they question, they cannot believe that the blood has the power to cleanse them of their sins. Yes, even inside the Adventist church. There are many in Adventism who are going to try and work their way into glory when they have to believe their way in. And when we believe, the belief will take care of the action. I'm not saying you can sin your way into heaven either. But I am saying that many are, they've not forgiven, they don't believe they've been forgiven by God for the sins they committed sometimes 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so they're trying to find some other way to, to, to expunge that record. That was why the Protestant Reformation was fought in the first place. Because you can't pay a, 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 a fee and, and be moved from purgatory into heaven. You, you can't pay an indulgence and, and get uh, uh, your sins absolved. You can't go into a booth with a man and, and he take your sin from you. No, your sin must be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You grieve the Holy Spirit if you believe any other way. There's a seal of redemption. You've got to believe you've been forgiven. In fact, if you don't believe that the power of God is able to, and the blood of Jesus Christ is able to forgive you, you give demons power in your life. Jesus went to the cross, and he went to the cross, and his blood is sufficient. But you've got to believe it. And this is one of the great last day tests that is often not spoken about is that many are stuck waking up in the middle of the night worrying, am I forgiven? You've got to trust God. You've got to trust him because you have been sealed unto the day of redemption. You have been redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb his child, and forever I am. Ellen White says it like this in letter uh, 126, 1898 from the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 4. She says, what is the seal of the living God? Which is placed in the foreheads of his people. It is a mark which angels but not human eyes can read. For the destroying angel must see this mark of redemption. Did you get that? The seal of the living God isn't simply that you keep the Sabbath. It is that you've been redeemed. Redeemed from what? A life of sin. Your sins have been forgiven. You've got Holy Ghost power now. So you don't live like you used to live. Like Paul says, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. Ellen White says, Manuscript 173, 1902, she says, just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. 
Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. The judgments of God are now upon the land to give us warning that we may know what is coming. I hope you hear this, church. Ellen White makes it clear here that this seal, let's go back through this, 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 this text and then we'll, 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 we'll finish up. This passage of the, of, 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 of the spirit of prophecy is, is a powerful reminder. It says that as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, there's not a seal or mark that can be seen. It is a settling into the truth. And most of us think that that means I've studied as if I'm studying for a board exam after medical school or for the nursing boards or I'm studying for my bar exam if I'm a lawyer or, or one of the examinations that teachers must pass. We think that understanding the doctrine that way is simply what it means. That is important. Don't ever let anybody tell you that understanding our doctrines is not important. That's the intellectual side, but there's a spiritual side. Ellen White says it's not just intellectual, it's a spiritual settling into the truth. So that, so they cannot be moved. Did you get that? If you only get the intellectual part and you don't get the spiritual part, if you don't understand what it means to be washed in the blood of the lamb, if you don't get what it means to have a, an abiding relationship with Jesus, if you cannot sing with fervor and authenticity what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, if spiritually you've not been connected to the lamb of God, when, when the time of trouble comes, when difficulty comes, you'll be shaken out. As soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Then she says something profound. She said, in fact, the judgments of God are now upon the land to give us warning. Why? Because the shaking has already started. Watch this. I've been saying this since the beginning of this whole pandemic and all of the sermons we've been, I've been given. I keep saying that this coronavirus is a warning. This is a warning. That we may know what is coming, as the spirit of prophecy says. Why is it a warning? Because all of a sudden we found out that all of the things of the world that we put our trust in are fragile. That they break easily. In America, the richest nation in the world, with all of our pomp and pride, it is pandemonium and chaos in our, in our, in our response to this virus. All over the world, uh, no more sporting events. Uh, the food chain is broken down. There's a threat of mass starvation around the world because of this virus. All of these things happening to humble us. Everything we thought was for sure has been erased. It's a warning. It's a warning, especially to the church of God, that it is time to get ready. It's time to be sealed. Because one of the things that the spirit of prophecy says about this seal is that we are to be molded. Even now, our minds are being molded either to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast. Right now, you're, you're receiving that mold. So I challenge you, understand the warning. Because as we jump back to Revelation chapter 6, it says something profound. Revelation 6, 9 says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. We've read this already. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, and holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. 
And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Right? This is, that's the text that we've been reading. But I want to go deeper into that text. This text says that, listen, you got to wait a little while. There's more that are going to die. But when you go here, it says, and white robes were given unto them. The, the Greek word for robe is stoli. It's, it's, a, it's a word that means a full covering, like from head to toe, like, like a full covering. And the Bible says that this is given to them. White robe was given. Why? Because they came through great trial and tribulation. The characters were perfected, and that is represented that they have the character of Christ and the fact they were given a white robe. Compare that to the church of Laodicea. White robes, Revelation 3. It says, because thou sayest I am rich and increase, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, because thou sayest I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And look at this, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many, look at verse 19, as many as I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Don't miss this. When speaking uh, to those that would survive the, the dark ages, they're given a white room. This is a, at the time of the church of Thyatira, Sardis, maybe. You, you, can, you can match those up uh, however you want to match them up. But these are the, those, are those are coming out of the dark ages. But Laodicea represents the church of today, of now not the church of the dark ages. And although the church of the dark, those that are white, if you read of Star Sardis, those that, that kept their robes, um, those, those that God separated, they wound up being given a white robe. Look at this. The church of the last day is told that they must buy their robe, their white garments. What? Why would you have to buy a white garment now when they were given theirs? Because of verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, and increase with goods and have need of nothing. You see, church, the pandemic of persecution has a purpose. The trials that we're about to go through as a church, even before um, uh, the seven last plagues fall and, 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 and all of those things happen, the trials that we're going through now serve a purpose. They are to show us our need. Yes, our need. Because we don't realize that spiritually we're miserable. We're poor and blind and naked. And isn't it crazy that you just call somebody poor and that they're naked and then tell them to buy something? In the next verse, how can you buy something if you're poor and naked? But the word buy here is a powerful word. What is really being said is that there's something you've got to give up. That's what happens when you do a, a transaction and you buy something. You give up something in order to receive something. So clearly you can't buy the gospel. You can't buy salvation. What is it that must be given up? What is being given up here is our arrogance and pride. You got to let go of it. The Self-righteousness. Lazy fair, lackadaisical attitude towards spiritual things. Some things have to be given up. Your worldliness. Your desire for for. Uh, popularity and acceptance in a world gone mad you've got to get rid of it in fact what Jesus says 
verse 19 is that he loves you so much that, he's gonna that he will allow us to be rebuked and chastened. In other words, the trials, the pandemic of persecution, the difficulty that you are going through right now and some of the difficulties that we're going to go through, they are allowed so that we will repent. They are allowed so that we'll come back to God fully and wholeheartedly, so that we will understand our condition. And once we truly understand our condition, we can buy because then we understand our need for Christ. That's why Satan sometimes gives people everything they want. That's why the people in the world that are turning from God the most are those with the most. In fact, Isaiah says it like this. Isaiah 55 and verse 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wait a minute. He says, listen, Isaiah says, listen, you can buy without money and without price. In fact, he asks in verse 2, he says, wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread. What is bread? Bread is the word of God. Why are you spending effort and time on that which won't feed you spiritually? And he goes on to say, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me and eat that ye that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. What are you buying? What do you get for free? You get into a covenant relationship, which means you get credit. The Bible says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You don't have anything really to offer. So you get credit. You get to buy based on the sure mercies of David. What does that mean? It means that, the, the, as the gospel says, through grace and mercy, you will grace, you will get what you don't deserve, and mercy, you won't get what you do deserve. God is going to give you what you don't deserve, but you've got to buy it. How do you buy it? Through faith. Through believing. You get credit so that you can purchase. So righteousness is by faith. James 1 and verse 2 says, My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Did you get that? It is the trying of your faith. We're going to go through difficulty, church, because our faith must be tried to develop patience. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. How do you get that patience? You get it through trial. Verse 4 of James 1 says, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. In other words, so that you get your white robe wanting nothing. He goes on in verse 5 of James 1, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given unto him. You don't think you have what it takes? Ask God for the wisdom. Ask God to empower your frontal lobe, the part of your brain that is being molded to either receive the seal of God or the, or the mark of the beast. Ask God to give you wisdom. Where does wisdom sit? It sits in the frontal lobe. Let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Did you get it? It's faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Did you get it? You can't buy it if you don't believe, if you don't have faith. You won't get anything from God. Verse 8 makes it clear, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. 
double-minded man is unstable. You can't try and oscillate between the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Back and forth. Because the mark of the beast is not yet Sunday laws. As much as I've talked about it, that's not what it is yet. You're molding your mind to receive the mark of the beast. You are molding your mind to be separated from God so you receive what the world gives you. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Persecution will purify our souls. It, is, it was persecution that was the, the blood of the martyrs was the, was the seed of the church. It grew the church. Revelation 8, verse 1 says, When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. I'm going to finish this talk on the seven seals and on the, 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 um, the pandemic of persecution with this verse, and then we'll give a couple quotes from Ellen White and be done. But, but I want you to get this. Once the people of God are sealed, there's silence in heaven. When Jesus steps out of the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, he takes off his priestly robes and puts on his kingly robes. And when he leaves heaven to come to earth, there's silence there because all the angels, everyone follows him here. During that time, the last iteration of persecution will happen. We'll talk about that more in a second. And we'll go to the time of Jacob's trouble. That is going to happen. But I want you to understand that the day is coming when heaven will be silent. Why will it be silent? It will be silent because Christ is coming to get you. Ellen White says this in Christian Experience and Teaching, page 100. I saw that the four angels would hold the four winds until Jesus' work was done in the sanctuary. And then will come the seven last plagues. These plagues enraged the wicked against the righteous. They, that, they thought that we had brought the judgments of God upon them and that if they could rid the earth of us, the plagues would then be stayed. A decree went forth to slay the saints, which caused them to cry day and night for deliverance. This was the time of Jacob's trouble. Then all the saints cried out with anguish of spirit and were delivered by the voice of God. The 144,000 triumphed. Their faces were lighted up with the glory of God. He's coming to get you, church. And when things on earth seem the darkest, when the people of God cry the loudest, the voice of God, spoken of by Paul, the voice of God, the shout of God, and the, and the, and the, and the voice of the archangel shall be heard. That archangel is Christ himself. And all of a sudden, we will be delivered at the darkest hour. Ellen White, we'll finish with this last quote. Ellen White says this, Christian experience in teaching page 103, she says, God has shown me that he gave his people a bitter cup to drink, to purify and cleanse them. It is a bitter draft, and they can make it still more bitter by murmuring, complaining, and repining. But those who receive it thus must have another draft. For the, first don't, for the first does not have its design effect upon the heart. And if the second does not affect the work, they must have another and another until it does have its designed effect. 
or they will be left filthy, impure in heart. I saw that this bitter cup can be sweetened by patience, endurance, and prayer, and that it will have its designed effect upon the hearts of those who thus receive it. And God will be honored and glorified. I challenge you, church, not to receive the bitter cup that is coming upon us as this pandemic has shown. Do not receive the bitter cup with murmuring, complaining, and repining. Receive this bitter cup with patience, endurance, and prayer. For The race is not to the strong or to the swift, but to he that endures to the end. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and these prophecies. I pray, Lord, that this message would reach the right people. Father God, we would all realize that we are in between the verses. And that, Lord, you are soon to return. Many of us tonight are going through difficulties, hardships, but, Lord, you've given us these things to purify us. Lord, because we've got to buy white garment as the church of Laodicea. And, Lord, we have nothing to buy it with, so we've got to learn to believe you. We've got to trust you, Lord, that you are able to deliver us from sin and that you can forgive us from sin and that, Lord, you don't keep bringing our sin back up. So, Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to walk into these last days understanding the power of the blood, not only its ability to give us strength over sin, but the fact that it eradicates sin in our lives completely past, present, and give us strength to get over sinning in the future. Lord, as the persecutions, the difficulties, and the trials mount up and pile up, Lord, let us remember that you love us. So sometimes, Lord, you allow, you allow these things, but you, we are never left alone to deal with them. Help each of us to cultivate a relationship with Jesus Christ that is meaningful and deep, and the one that will last through the ceaseless ages of eternity. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.